I have a lot of goals in running and I have a lot of dreams in running, but I feel like I love to run, period, end of sentence. And if that is kind of all I'm ever going to be able to say about my running career from here on out, I'd maybe be a little bit disappointed. But at the end of the day, like I want to run when I'm 80. I want to run with my family. I want to run with my friends. I want to run with my dog. And those miles that I can put in going forward, I hope they lead to really cool things on the track. But if they lead to really cool things through, you know, other opportunities that come forward in the future, that would be just as cool. And so maybe looking ahead, I'm I'm not trying to write my future out maybe like I used to. I'm just trying to go a little bit more with the flow and, and see where the run takes me. That's Mary Kane. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Mary Kane. Mary is the youngest American athlete ever to represent the United States at the World Championships, which she did in 2013 as a 17-year-old high school phenom, finishing 10th in the 1,500-meter final. Earlier that year, she broke numerous high school and junior records from 800 meters through the 5,000. She turned professional in the fall of 2013, joining the Nike Oregon Project under coach Alberto Salazar in Portland, Oregon. In 2014, Mary broke more junior records. She won a senior national title indoors at 1,500 meters and then took the World Junior Championship at 3,000 meters outdoors. It appeared that she was on top of the world until it all came crashing down in 2015 and 2016 when her performances suffered seemingly inexplicably. Mary left the Oregon Project in 2016 and returned home to New York, where she enrolled at Fordham University and began training with John Henwood, who helped coach her in high school. She spent much of 2017 and 2018 battling injuries and had pretty much fallen off the radar from a competitive standpoint. Then, last November, Mary came forward in the New York Times with a powerful op-ed sharing her story of the emotional and physical abuse that she suffered while she was an Oregon Project athlete. The piece exploded online and revealed details about how Mary had suffered from disordered eating while a member of the team, Mr. Period for three years, broke five bones, and suffered from thoughts of suicide. Following that story, several other former Oregon Project athletes backed her claims of similar mistreatment going back at least 10 years. Mary, who is now 24 years old, recently took a job at Tracksmith as the community manager in New York City, where she continues to live and train with an eye toward returning to world-class competition. In this conversation, we got into the details of her new full-time employment arrangement, talked about the importance of not being outcome-oriented, the energizing effect of being actively involved in her New York City running community, and how she picked herself back up after leaving Oregon and returning to New York. We also dug into Mary the person versus Mary the runner and when that flipped for her, what she experienced during her time in Oregon, and being self-critical and feeling helpless when she was told that she needed to lose weight in order to run faster. She also told me when she realized the environment at the Oregon Project was a problem and why it took her so long to realize it and leave, if her training partners and teammates at the time showed any concern for her while she was suffering, how she's thinking about her running goals in the next few years, and a lot more. 
This is a packed one, folks, and I'll tell you right now that it got emotional at times. So without further ado, let's dive right in with Mary Kane. All right, Mary Kane, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, We are having this conversation kind of late in the day for you. It's 5.30 p.m. I assume you're just wrapping up your workday. I'd love to just understand what does a typical day look like for you right now during these atypical times? Yeah, so I, um, you know, try to do my first run. Uh, kind of early in the morning or quote unquote early, I'll call it like starting at 8.30, 9 a.m., something like that. Um, Maybe if I have like a later start to the work day, I can sleep in a little bit extra. Um, But right now I've been doing, you know, not a ton of mileage. I think just because I don't have the same access to like PT or support staff um, in an in-person setting, I've been running maybe about like 60 miles a week or so. Um, And so a lot of days it is just one run and then maybe strength training in the evenings after work. Um, But I get my my run done early and then between, we'll call it like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. or so, um, I'm kind of on the clock. And it's not that my (laughs) jobs are such that I, you know, have to be like, really, you know, always available between those hours. Sometimes I do things kind of after hours um, or on weekends, but, uh, you know, I usually just try to kind of keep it flexible so that I can do any calls or any meetings I need to during the day and um, supplement with any extra training like core or stretching just kind of in between all of the meetings. Tell me a little bit about your new job. You were recently hired as community manager at Tracksmith and you've been on for a few weeks now. I'd love to understand a little bit more about your role and what that looks like right now. Yeah, it's been really fun, honestly. Um, This is not my first and or only job like this. Um, I currently also uh, work part-time at New York Roadrunners. So usually that like nine to five block is split between meetings with my NYRR team and my Tracksmith team. And my role at Tracksmith specifically is um, just kind of brainstorming right now, creative ways that we can like continue to connect with our runners. And in particularly for me, the New York City community. And of course, because of COVID, a lot of the kind of in-person plans and um, events such as runs or uh, speaking opportunities are being put on hold right now, unfortunately. And so I think if this was a different timing or this was this time last year, um, it would have been easier for me to kind of hit the ground running, no pun intended, and, you know, immediately be hosting group runs. And so these kind of early weeks, we've been spending a lot of time trying to plan how I'm going to start engaging with the NYC community when we can't necessarily meet up and run together. And we have a few ideas that we're going to be starting to unveil in the next few weeks and kind of slowly test the waters with some stuff. Um, And it's been just really cool. I listened to Nick's podcast actually the other day on my run and he um, said something that that really resonated with me, 
which is the fact that I think both of us come onto calls and we have like 10 ideas and we're going through all of them. Um, and everybody within the company has been really both supportive and excited about our ideas, but also reminding us to sort of take a deep breath mm-hmm. and try to work on the quality of each activation rather than the quantity of them. And that's been a really interesting challenge to try to figure out how um, just to kind of go outside of the box during this time and be able to start our roles um, without maybe doing a lot of the, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of low hanging fruit stuff that I think I initially um, had been thinking of doing. So it's been, it's been really fun kind of testing that creative side of myself. I imagine it's, doubly challenging one just being in a new role in general and integrating into a company when you're not in the same environment with them all the time but then also when a lot of your job is going to be on the ground and just not being able to do that right now just trying to find your groove early on in this process yeah i mean i think you know i almost feel bad sometimes when i list maybe positive attributes to this time because obviously everything happening in the world is just so terrible and negative and impacting so many people. Um, But I think in a very kind of selfish perspective, it's been almost helpful having everybody be remote and virtual right now. My job long-term will be something where I'm, you know, living and working in New York city and um, really at least short term, the only rep within the New York City community. And as a result, I do think having our initial weeks and months of work um, almost in the same setting as all my coworkers, in that I'm not the only person or one of you know two or three who are calling in virtually, but instead we're all in Zoom meetings and we're all within our own um, houses and, you know, like home offices, um, I think has almost been more beneficial to me because I don't feel like what I'm doing is any different from any of my coworkers. And therefore it's been almost more encouraging to know we're all in the same boat in that regard. Take me back a little bit. When did the conversations with Tracksmith about this possible role begin? Yeah. So it, I feel like in so many ways it it all happened so fast and yet it also was done over such a nice methodical kind of natural development period of time. So I guess earlier this year, maybe in February, uh, Matt and the Tracksmith team, or I guess it could have been January. I can't even really quite remember the exact timeline had reached out uh, in the interest of me doing a partnership that would be more of a one-time uh, opportunity, not like a long-term thing, just maybe like a one-off marketing experience. And we started kind of contacting back and forth. And I, I feel just right off the bat, um, there was a mutual just, I, I guess we both like, we all liked each other. And then I was like, wow, you guys are doing really interesting things. And, you know, I loved their marketing idea. And I just started talking more with the team and it just organically turned into a conversation of, have you guys ever considered partnering with athletes and what would that look like for you guys? And then asking really the same questions to me of what would you want in a relationship with a company? 
And I feel we were both just coming from very similar uh, kind of views of the sport where all of the things that we love, that we find positive, that we find um, really motivating within the track and field world, we were in agreement with. And then all of the places where we maybe feel there's room for growth or um, have an opportunity to be changed, we, we resonated with each other. And so it just very organically developed into a conversation of what would it look like if I came on as a full-time employee and what roles would I be interested in considering taking on at Tracksmith? And it was really cool because I was given a lot of freedom in that it wasn't something where they were like, okay, we need this very specific role. Would you be interested in filling it? Instead, it was finding out, you know, what my strengths were, um, what were my areas of interest, what were my areas of expertise. And through that, we were able to build the role that I'm going to be filling as New York City Community Manager. Before those conversations started, you were a free agent as far as sponsorship was concerned. How are you thinking about that aspect of your running earlier this year? So there was um, definitely a period of time where I was sort of soul searching, uh, not to sound cliche, uh, as to what I wanted to do going forward in that I did have some companies reach out to me that were more within the traditional sphere. um, But I felt there was always a little bit of language of like, we want to see how you're racing, which is totally normal. And this is the first season that I've strung together healthy in a while. Um, And so I felt there was, you know, some also non-traditional companies who were reaching out to me. And that was something that I was, you know, kind of like, keeping maybe more of an eye open for to see if there was something new and creative that I could create. Uh, Because I think there was always just a wariness from me of jumping into something so similar to what I maybe had a, a more negative experience in. And that's not to say that other people won't have amazing and positive experiences in the traditional athlete sponsor model, but I just felt after everything I had done and after everything I had experienced, I just felt like I had more to offer to a company. And the idea of kind of leaving maybe those other values on the table that I feel I have to add uh, just felt like it would be wasteful. Um, And so I was just really kind of taking the whole process very slow and just trying to see you know, what opportunities came my way and just keep talking to different people. And when Matt and the Tracksmith team came along, it it was just like, it was almost just like so, so serendipitous to meet people who you were like, oh, wow, you're thinking all the same things I am. This is really cool. Um, so yeah, it was just weirdly perfect timing. Hypothetically, if that hadn't happened, would you have been okay going without sponsorship for a while and just carving your own path? Or do you think you would have felt stuck that you would have had to take a deal if you wanted to continue running at a professional level? My plan was definitely to wait for the right situation. And that, and that's not to say that that didn't stress me out or make me a little wary. I mean, I, I really feel for any of the NCAA athletes coming out who you know, are dealing with the the current contract freeze. I just, 
like I feel I like I understand that stress. And so when I say, you know, I was ready and willing to wait, that's not to say that wasn't with, you know, the the added maybe emotional stress that would come with it. But um, from a financial perspective, I do have a, a part-time job with NYRR and I have worked um, with a running studio here in New York City called Mile High Run Club. And um, during COVID, we're, we're not open, but we're still doing online classes. And so I think I would have had the opportunity to be creative and continue pursuing this. And, um, you know, had we had a crystal ball and been able to change the experience we're in now and um, had racing still been able to happen and all of that, I definitely would have been more in a situation where I felt comfortable and and stronger about waiting um, for the right fit rather than diving into something if I had any sort of wariness around it. In your current role, you're a full-time employee of Tracksmith. You get paid on a regular schedule. You take part in team meetings. You have responsibilities that you need to fulfill on the ground in New York where you live. But at some point when races return, you are going to compete. And you had talked about how you know, part of your arrangement with them is there wasn't really conversation about, you know, performance or reduction or, or anything like that. But say you get into a good groove and you really start crushing it on the track. Is there incentive in there for you? Like when you do run fast, if you do win another national title, if you do make an Olympic team, I'd love to understand that part of it as much as you can talk about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think like any employee, I'm going to have the opportunity to always talk to my manager and my bosses and uh, rework things when it's appropriate. Um, so it's not it's not like a traditional contract that you sign where you're kind of locked in unless you hit very specific things. Um, you know, I don't want to say this is super fluid, but at the same time, it's kind of like a normal job and that you do have the opportunity to be promoted and you know whether that's directly related to athletic performance or you know more like my actual performance in my day-to-day duties it doesn't you know doesn't really matter um to me in that sense I think every year we'll be able to just you know find areas for me to improve and um I think there's something really exciting about that and then for me as an athlete as a whole, I mean, as my performances, um, you know, hopefully continue to improve over the next few years, there's other opportunities for me. Um, you know, I don't have a shoe sponsor currently, um, and I'm not like here to dive into one. <laughs> I'm not mentioning that on the pod because I need one or anything like that. It's kind of fun being able to try different shoes um, and see what fits for me. But at the same time, um, I feel like it's a really cool opportunity because there's more long-term growth and personal growth. Um, and then maybe just like quick gains you can get from performance, like prize money and stuff like that. I'm not, you know, all of a sudden ineligible for in some sort of manner. What does that do for you knowing all of that from a mental and emotional perspective as you think about your training and your racing moving forward? It honestly motivates me a lot. I think I had unfortunately kind of gotten into the mental space of 
almost being more afraid to run and afraid to race because failure was so dark and so bad. Um, you know, in, in 2015, I came in eighth at USA's and that was treated like the greatest failure. Um, and to me, looking back, I'm like, hey, it's like, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> like that was, that was actually okay. Um, but if you're in a mental space where you can't separate performance and really understand what it means, I think that's just really problematic from just an overall mental and emotional health perspective. And um, that's going to kind of seep into other parts of your life. So to know that there's no um, negativity in a way that can be attached to any performance from my sponsor's perspective, I think is very freeing. Um, and to me, it just kind of motivates me in a new way because it makes me want to run for the excitement of it, for the joy, for the personal gains. And also because I do really want to make this group of people who have um, given me this opportunity proud and kind of give something to them versus feel like if I fail, I'm taking something away from them. Mm-hmm. And so it's just these sort of subtle but very powerful shifts in mindset um, that I think for me, at least personally, are just going to be really, really great going forward. And I know it's something that um, I just I just feel like even ever since the announcement, I've just been even more motivated on my runs and, you know, doing a few extra strides after a run and subtle stuff like that. Yeah, well, it sounds very similar to what Nick told me when I had him on the podcast. And I think what you just described, well, I know what you just described for a lot of professional athletes in the sport who make their living off sponsorship contracts. There is that fear of failure. And as you just described in 2015, like eighth place in the eyes of your sponsor was considered a failure. But as you said, it wasn't that bad. And it's almost now you're in a situation where that variable has been removed from the equation. You don't have to fear that failure anymore. Yeah. And I I think there's something to be said that if you're somebody who's competing at this level, then there's a certain point where you have those inner motivations already. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was a kid who went out and, you know, kind of did training on my own because I loved it because I wanted it because I was that intense and that inner pursuit, um, that got me to a world championship team when I was a high schooler is still in there. Um, but I think, you know, I as an individual have realized that I got there because of the internal drivers, not the external ones. If anything, I did a very good job at those ages to really kind of zone those out and ignore them. Um, And for me as an athlete, I think the more it's an internal drive, the, the better off I am. Yeah, I think that's a huge takeaway for anyone listening to this, regardless of what level they're competing at. Because I see it with a lot of the age group athletes that I coach when they start becoming extrinsically motivated, whether it's chasing a Boston qualifier or even a personal best sometimes or Olympic trials qualifier, it induces this this form of pressure that wasn't there years prior at the beginning when they first got into the sport. And I love hearing that from you and someone who has been at that super high level that you're almost going back to those those early days and that attitude that you had, you know, when you were getting into the sport in 
junior high and you're really just doing it for the love of the thing itself and then also to see what you can get out of yourself without comparing it to something else. Exactly. I mean, I've always done my best from in my running and and just even, you know, when I was in school or swimming or, you know, different aspects of my life, if I had a hard goal and I really thought to achieve it, and if I didn't, I was disappointed, but it just added fuel to the fire for next time for me to shoot for it again. But I think when we either set such high expectations that are so do or die that you're not able to pick yourself up afterwards and just almost be like more energized and more motivated from your failures. Um, I just think it's really hard to have a sustainable career in that. Um, And it's, you know, that's not to say that sometimes I don't seep back into that mindset or, you know, one loss or one moment is like a harder punch to the gut than another. Um, But in general, if that's your, if that keeps picking you up, that motivation to keep trying, um, you're always going to do better than if you're almost too afraid to try. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. One thing I'd love to get your thoughts on where you are right now in life, professionally, personally, I mean, you're going to be in a role that puts you out into the community in New York where you live, and you're still a professional athlete trying to train and race at the highest level of the sport. But typically, a a lot of professionals and elites, they're pretty isolated from their own communities. They almost exist in their own bubble. You know, it's all about kind of, for most, training, race, recover, and they'll do some social media stuff, but they're not really like out in the community. How are you thinking about that moving forward, balancing your own training, racing at a, at a high level, but also just immersing yourself in the community where you grew up? I think part of it for me is that I've already been doing it. Um, ever since I've kind of maybe fallen off the track world's radar, um, those are the people who I've been running with. Those are the people who I'm training with. Um, those are my friends. So the people like, you know, follow their races with, um, go to meets to cheer for. And so for me, it's not, it's not so much that I'm making a change. It's just, I'm embracing what I've already been doing. Mm -hmm. And I've found that for me, it's just been such a blessing to have people who have like kept that love I guess, for the sport in me. Um, I think if I didn't have this New York City running scene to be a part of and to, you know, meet up for people for for long runs or um, have friends to hop into workouts with or just do an easy jog with, I think it would have been really hard for me to even still, you know, get up and lace up after a certain point. Um, You know, when you just get caught into such an injury cycle you know, it's, it's, it's hard after the fourth or fifth time to, you know, get back up and decide, Hey, I'm, I'm still trying this thing. Um, and it was thanks to those people that I'm, that I'm still here, that I'm still running and that I was able to complete my first healthy season of running and and finish it off with a lot of runway and a lot of, you know, positivity towards the future. Um, and so I think for me, it's more, 
you know, I think a lot of other pros might look at this as kind of crazy, <laughs> but I'm like, I've already been doing it. Did you realize that you were missing that in the time that you were away from New York? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was always someone who ran by themselves a lot. Um, and that's just because I think, you know, getting into the sport, I, I always found it a very freeing experience being able to go for runs on my own. And so in certain ways, going to Portland, that wasn't such a big change. But at the same time, I still think I thought joining a team meant I was automatically going to have like friends to run with, <laughs> which in retrospect is a little sad. Um, and so I think my expectations were different than the execution um, because I just thought this was going to be different from my high school years and I was going to have people to run with. And I, you know, didn't really necessarily have that experience of having teammates. And then coming back to New York, there was definitely a period of time, like maybe my first year home, um, where it was, it was kind of like still hard for me to meet up with people to go for a run because it just felt like too personal of an experience for me at that point. And, and, and that might be a weird thing to say, but it just, I had such a maybe damaged at that point relationship with my running sure. that I almost didn't want people. I mean, this sounds terrible to like see me maybe break down in a run um, and not be able to finish a run because it was just something that I couldn't really put the same amount of love and joy into as I had in the past. Um, and I was really, you know, just struggling with that. And it was in many ways, thanks to my coach here, John Henwood, who has a group of uh, marathon racers in the city. And, you know, people have run from like 230 marathons to three hour marathons, which are like perfect training partners for long runs or going for an easy run or something. And he really was always encouraging me to come in, run with people, like, don't worry about pace, just have fun with it. And I finally started um, really taking his advice and I, you know, slowly developed friends within the group. And um, it was through our running group that I actually met my boyfriend. <laughs> and so, so thanks, John, for that. He <laughs> <laughs> actually set us up. So I thank John for all of my social life. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I think just being able to find that community was really important to me. And, and it's just since grown and expanded um, into other teams and into other parts of the city and into other training groups. And um, I, I think being able to share a run with somebody is one of the greatest, greatest parts about running. Were there other ways that you picked yourself back up or was it all about that team, that community, and just running with people and immersing yourself in it? You know, I think it was both ends of the spectrum in that it was really, you know, kind of finding the joys of running from the very, like, maybe authentic sides of the sport where you're with other people and everybody's goal is just to improve and it's less, um, you know, about winning everybody's still very competitive and really trying to get the most out of themselves. Um, but there's not that same, like, Oh, if I PR and I didn't win, 
it's still a win for me and kind of reframing things in that way. But then it was also being able to really step away from the sport and go to college, finish my degree, make friends who had no idea like what the heck running was. And if I told them I went for a run or if I told them I didn't, they were not impressed either way. Um, And so being able to kind of like find different sides to myself. Um, I think one reason in high school I did as well as I did was most of my friends weren't runners um, and really didn't know anything about the sport. And that kept me very grounded. Uh, It was the same for my family. They just, you know, I was Mary, the person, not Mary, the runner. And being able to find that again uh, through Fordham and just other friendships was also really important. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. In your own mind, when did things first switch from being Mary the person to Mary the runner before you switch back to thinking of yourself as Mary the person? Um, I would say it was my first injury. Uh, I won the 2014 Indoor U.S. Championships. And like the next day I woke up and my shin hurt. And after a week of trying to run on it, we realized it was a stress reaction in my shin. And that was why I had to pull out of the world indoor championships um, that were going to be in Poland. And I remember that was just devastating. And um, I remember David Ritzenhain was my teammate at the time and he sent me such a nice email being like, it's okay. People get hurt. Like you're going to get through it. Um, and having that support was just amazing, but I felt like there was almost like a switch that flicked where it was suddenly a realization that you weren't indestructible. And that switch didn't only go off in my own head, but I felt in some of the people around me and there was just almost such a, like, semi-tanicked approach to stay as fit as you possibly could, even though you were hurt and to train so much. And it, it kind of worked out. Um, I ended up having a good outdoor season. Um, and I ended up 
uh, coming in second at USA's and winning world juniors, of course. But during that period of having time off, and I think starting to overtrain um, in order to stay as fit as I possibly could, that was the period of time that I first lost my period. Um, and that was also when my body started to just change. Um, I think part of it was just having that time of maybe like six weeks or two months of not running. Suddenly, I think there was this like weird, like internal fight in my body where it was both, (laughs) this is so weird to say, but like both trying to go through puberty finally. Um, And not to say that I hadn't, but it was just kind of this weird, like, I, I, I think I started to gain some weight. Um, and not in a dramatic way. I probably put on like three or four pounds or something. Um, but my body was just changing. And that was when language started to change um, towards me about how I looked and my weight. And um, it was, it became a very negative conversation. And looking back, it seems obvious you didn't have the mental or emotional tools to really know how to navigate something like that at the time, especially when you're hearing this from your coach and other people who are in your circle. Yeah, I think when you put people on such a pedestal um, and just like when it's like almost just told to you by everybody that they know everything. Um, you know, at the time at 17, 18 years old, you think you're really mature <laughs> um, and can, you know, like make decisions for yourself. But in reality, you're just kind of trying to listen to what the people you respect most are telling you. Um, and I, you know, I've always been the sort of kid who was like very much a rule follower, um, probably to a fault. <laughs> and so, you know, if my coach was telling me that I looked heavy um, and that I wasn't going to be able to have a European racing circuit because I wasn't fit enough because of how I looked and my weight, um, despite coming in second at USA's and winning world juniors, you're going to believe them and you're going to do everything in your power to try to fix what you're perceiving as this fault of yourself. Well, and at that age, most kids don't have the confidence to, one, stand up to an adult, and two, feel like they have any grounds to question their coach or their parents or whoever it is in that type of situation. Totally. And and I know in my case, um, I think early on, I, I kind of would tell my parents things like very early on. Um, after World Juniors, it was decided I wouldn't travel because I needed to lose weight first um, and just get fitter so that I could compete on an international level again. And I remember kind of just calling my parents pretty upset about it because I'd been, you know, looking forward to traveling with the team and everything. And they had reached out to be like, whoa, that's kind of weird. Like, <laughs> like, why are you talking to her about that? Um, and I think because they reached out, I then on the other end was getting, um, you know, kind of told off and told you can't talk to your parents about stuff like that. Like you have to listen to us and trust us and, 
you know, not kind of be a baby and call home anytime things get tough. Um, and I think as a, as probably many people can relate to, I took that very, very seriously and very to heart because, you know, you're going off to college, like you want to be an adult and you're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want to be a baby of the team. Like I'm an adult and you're doing everything you kind of can to prove yourself when, you know, looking back, I look at kids at that age now and I'm like, Oh, you, you, you are still so young. Like this is your first time Mm -hmm. doing something like that. And those are the times in your life when you need more people to lean on, not, not fewer. It's infuriating to hear you say that. And and I know that part of your story because it's been widely reported on, but as someone who coaches other athletes, not youths, it's just the abuse of power by a coach in that situation that is, is just wrong, you know, on, on every level to tell you like, no, well, one, you've got to lose weight Two, no, you can't talk to your parents about this. Like do as I say, because I'm, I'm the expert here. And, you know, you got to feel for the, for the kid because they're helpless in that type of situation. Um, you know, what, what are they to do when, you know, this, this authority figure in their, their life is dictating it for them? Yeah. And I just, you know, I mean, in so many ways, the main reason that I told my story was because as soon as I realized that everything was wrong, um, and that took me a really long time to realize, I think because this sort of behavior in many ways is normalized within the sport, Mm -hmm. I couldn't quite accept it was wrong. So even though I knew things were problematic and my gut was just kind of like screaming out at me even after leaving the team I just still blamed myself and there that's not to say I didn't make mistakes and you know don't wish I didn't speak up for myself or do different things um but like once I realized it was bad I just didn't want anybody else to be put in that situation and my heart goes out to anybody who right now feels they are in that, but never, never feel trapped. Um, I mean, I think the greatest thing that I did for myself was leaving and was getting out of it. And I honestly wouldn't have had the bravery to do that if it wasn't for my parents and for my coach. Um, now John, who, um, was actually the person who intervened when he realized, uh, the mental health side to everything that was happening. Um, but you know, if you're, if you feel you're in a similar situation and you feel trapped in any way, reach out, whether that's to a family member, a teammate, a friend, a a medical professional, um, there's, there's always a way to get out. Let's pull on that thread a little bit more. You are obviously in a very unique situation being one of the top runners in the country as a part of what was then the the top training group in the country. You're away from home for the first time. Most folks aren't going to find themselves in that exact situation, but as you described, like this type of behavior, it has been normalized in the sport and it happens to varying degrees at all levels. What other advice would you give to an athlete, boy or girl? Could be a kid, could be someone who's competing for a club who feels trapped like you did and doesn't know where exactly to go or who to talk to. I mean, I think the 
the problem kind of for me and and the reason it maybe went on as long as it did was that I, I was talking to the wrong people. Um, and I, I think you always need to be aware of your surroundings and determine who everybody else is maybe answering to or whose interests other people around you have um, kind of at the forefront. And that I don't even always say that in a critical way, because sometimes it could just be that, you know, you're asking your teammates for help and they just don't know what to do. And they're as scared as you are. And maybe that means they're not the right people to turn to. Um, You know, maybe in that situation, an adult figure is more appropriate. Um, If you keep going to the assistant coach um, and they're not speaking up for you and they're not shutting things down, then turn to the trainer. Um, There's always going to be somebody around. And if it gets to a point where you have to go almost external and, and like outside of that team environment, um, sometimes that can be the scariest thing to do because there's a fear that people won't understand it. Um, I think for me, that was kind of a concern when I finally called my parents I was scared that they would just be so just almost surprised because I hadn't been telling them up to that point what was going on um, and therefore wouldn't like know how to handle it. But they were amazing and immediately um, got me out of there. And um, I, I think just being able to find like support is the most important thing. Um, and know that you don't have to, and you shouldn't do things alone. Um, and you know, it's not that you shouldn't do things alone, but it's more, don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's really valuable advice. And I appreciate you sharing it with everyone listening to this. You mentioned how you had that feeling when you finally went to your parents and told them what you had experienced and what you were feeling. Did you have a similar feeling when you went to the New York Times last fall and told your story, knowing that it was going to be read by the entire running community and beyond? No, actually, in a, in a weird in a weird way. Um, so when I told my parents, I told them what was my like mental health situation. Um, I actually did not immediately tell them that I was cutting myself, but that was what almost drove me to call them. And I, I, I spoke only about my eating disorder um, and the issues that were pertaining to that. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, I thought my eating disorder was the fact that I couldn't lose weight. And so my parents are, you know, across the country on the phone, probably listening to me like, oh my God, she thinks she has an eating disorder because she can't lose weight. This is really bad. And I don't mean to laugh, but um, the the red flags were just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my fear, I think, was more from them, like kind of saying what everybody else around me had been saying, which is just try harder. Um, and to them, they could actually hear the cry for help as like, we need, this is, this is not okay. Um, and then just over time, I think, and, and then 
kind of in-person witnessing some of the behavior around me, um, started to understand why I was feeling this way and why this was such a fear of mine. Um, but for me, it, it took me so like I left Portland after my freshman year of college, but I stayed on the team long distance for, for a full other year because I was just so in denial that, that I think I had a problem. And my parents were like, you cannot go back. You are not a, like, this is, you have to work with somebody. We have to work through this. Um, and you know, after maybe about nine months, I started to kind of accept, um, like my own kind of issues, but it was still two years or so after, you know, until really Alberto's USADA ban that I think I really realized that it was the environment that was a problem. And in retrospect, I don't know why it took me so long, but I think when behavior is so normalized, it's just, it's, if literally everybody around you is saying it's normal, except for your parents and your very close friends and family members, um, I think it's just almost hard for you to accept that. Yeah, that's a hard thing to reconcile. Yeah, because you're like, of course your mom's going to be protective. Mm -hmm. But if all your teammates are acting like, you know, this is okay and you're the problem, then you're going to think that's the case. Um, And so for me, it was like once that veil came off and once I really saw the situation for what it was, then there was no fear because there was like, I feel the girl who, you know, went through this and who for years was silent, was scared. And as soon as I kind of was able to accept what had happened that fear went away because there was a strength in knowing that this was wrong. And there was a certain point, you know, before the piece came out and even after the piece came out where I felt, you know, some people were maybe even around me were very just like almost, I think scared for me. Um, you know, and even if I was like getting on camera and saying these things, um, and saying my truth, there was just a lot of kind of nervous energy and just like, are you sure you're okay to do this? And I was like, this is the first time in like five years that I'm telling the truth. How, how can you be scared of that? How can you be scared sitting in front of a camera and just being honest? Um, to me, it's way more scary to sit and lie to people. Like that's, that to me is sad. That to me is scary. Um, not just telling people what happened. Did it feel like you could finally let a weight off at that time? Yeah, completely. And I mean, I think that's why I was able to run healthy the Sindor. Um, I, I feel there was not this like fear going out to run this weight on me, this just constant internal beatdown of myself because even though I over the past few years have been able to get out of um, the disordered eating cycle that I was in, 
I still in this just insane way. And I've since talked to people and I know many women who have been men who've had um, eating issues can sympathize with this, but I felt really bad still, even after like kind of going through my own treatment process of never have been able to throw up. Like that sounds insane. But to me, it was like, oh, I, I didn't want it enough. Like there was this kind of self-critical perspective on everything um, rather than kind of letting myself, you know, take a breath and give myself a break in a way. No, I <laughs> I can relate to that. I mean, I've, I've been there myself and I've, I've shared my own struggles with disordered eating pretty openly in the past. But I know exactly what you mean. And I think there's something about that mindset that can help you in other aspects of your life, whether it's in athletics or your profession mm-hmm. or whatever it happens to be. But in a case like this, it can work against you in, in a very bad way because you don't feel like you're working hard enough. And maybe there's something else that you could do that will help you to throw up or maybe lose a few more pounds. I mean, I mean everything you just described, I've, I've been there myself. So I know, I know exactly what you mean. It sounds, it sounds totally crazy, but it's, you know, it's a reality for anyone who's ever been in this type of situation. Yeah. And I mean, I think the most heartbreaking thing and a way for me after telling my story was how many people were like, oh yeah, I totally relate. (laughs) And I, like, I wasn't surprised, but yet it was so upsetting Mm -hmm. to just see the sheer numbers of people because, I mean, it was also, I guess, positive because to me that meant that like we were like as maybe a society farther along in our healing processes from these um the this mental health side of the sport that can be very negative you know I think part of me was my only like thought about releasing my story and this wasn't a fear this was just like how I assumed it was going to go was you know half the people would be very positive half the people would be very negative and it would just be a very small number of people (laughs) who saw this and who read this and who um cared and maybe it would only be the track world but that wasn't because I didn't think this was systemic it was just because I thought you know we might not be ready to address these issues and, you know, the shining a light on them might have kind of turned people away versus drawn people to it. Um, And it was like on the positive side, I I felt, you know, the reaction was just so um, positive that I, I felt people were ready. Well, kudos to you for your bravery and in, in sharing your story, and especially when you do so in a platform or on a platform like the New York Times and it reaches a very wide audience, the effect can be really powerful. And I think it highlights the importance of storytelling. I mean, on a, on a much lesser level, when I first shared my story, it was in a very like little red blog post. And eventually it got to bigger platforms and reach more people. But you end up hearing from folks who are like, I see a lot of myself in your story. Thank you for sharing it. I thought it was just me, you know, so on and and so forth. And and I think just given like your, you know, level of recognition and then the platform that you share the story on, it reaches so many people who are 
able to identify with some aspect of your story and it helps them to get through their own struggles. Yeah. And I mean, the number of people who afterwards messaged me was just overwhelming. And to anybody I didn't get back to, I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Like I, you know, I just, I feel so bad that I can't almost like hug everybody. And especially now there's, there's really no hugging happening. <laughs> and I want to be able to send that to people, but you know, it really, I think a lot of the topics that I discussed in the New York Times, I was still like early on in my own healing process for because it had only been like six weeks or two months of me like accepting it. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, you know, already accepted the fact that I had, you know, a disordered eating past and had already been really working my way through that and then much, much, much better place with food. Um, and you know, I hadn't cut in a long time. And so it's not to say that I wasn't kind of on the outside, um, like really well on my way, if not out of the woods with those issues. But I think internally having that just resounding support and love sent my way almost made me realize how much I was still holding on to a darkness. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do thank everybody who sent their support and sent their love because it really, it really did help me. And, you know, I just, I want to send that all back to everybody as well. When you were in the depths of your struggles, did anyone in your immediate environment, meaning training partners or other associated people reach out to you just to ask if you were okay? Could they sense that you were struggling or was, you know, it just business as usual? Um, more the latter. I, I remember after I left um, the, like we were in a, training camp in Park City. And right after Oxy, I left to go back to New York. And two two people sent me a message. Um, and I remember being like, oh, wow, like people noticed I left. <laughs> like, wow, thanks. Um, and then later on in the summer, um, like I still raced, I still traveled in that 2015 European circuit. Um, and I remember kind of being like, yeah, thanks. And they were like, well, you're not really on the team anymore, are you? And I was like, well, no, I, I still am. I'm just, you know, trying to like work through some things. And then the same people just ghosted me when I would reach out after that. And I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know. Did I somehow, did it get around why I left? And then there was concern being associated with me. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it was really, I was very much alone when I was there and I was a very much alone after. Um, and people who I thought were my friends, I realized weren't. Um, and since the piece coming out, uh, two of my uh, past teammates reached out to me and just really, like meaningful and ways I can never thank them enough for. Um, one was Dathan who had never overlapped with me during like the 2014 year. He retired or he didn't retire. Sorry. He retired recently, um, but he had left the program um, 
before like World Juniors or anything like that. So he never witnessed it. But just the messages he sent me just were like, (laughs) I don't want to cry, but like the teammates I think I thought I was going to have. Um, and Cam Levins had also, uh, just reached out and just said he was sorry because he was the only one who said he thought. Wow. I haven't cried about this in a while. I'm sorry for getting emotional. Don't apologize. Um, But I think for me, it was just, I remember talking to Lindsey Krauss before the story came out and even though he, you know, if you're working with the New York Times, you can't just <laughs> show up and like make accusations and have zero like reporting on the back end, right? So even though I had documentation and we had um, previous athletes from the program step up and share similar experiences, uh, you know, she Lindsay really was trying to see if there was anybody on the program at the time who might like say they saw it and I just kept telling her there is nobody who's going to do that there's just nobody um and I know she reached out to at least one person who like said all of it was a lie and that was that was really hard to hear um and the fact that Cam afterwards really stepped in and did something that honestly I think was braver than what I did. Um, I will just never be able to thank him enough for like seeing me and, you know, just giving a little bit of extra, um, I, I think strength to me during a time, like looking back and knowing that I did have, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I did have one friend there. Um, and I think both of those guys are just people who all they'll always mean something in my heart and, you know, always be a reminder of what a teammate really could and should be because it's not always about doing the right thing in the moment. Um, and of course, we as people always strive to do that, but being able to be there for people um, and step in and admit that you've made mistakes, I think is, you know, sometimes as brave and if not harder to do. So whew, I didn't expect to be crying like that, but I I think there's just something, um, you know, maybe about not talking about it in a little while where you're just, you know, it, it kind of hits you a little bit harder just thinking sure. of those two. Yeah. So. Well, well, you've, you've created some space, which I think is, is healthy. Um, but I appreciate you sharing all that. I know there are difficult things to, to bring back up, but I think it's important to to talk about. I think it says a lot about the situation that you're in without, you know, speaking about anyone in particular. Yeah, and I, I think throughout this process, um, I've never like my end game in telling the story um, is to help other people. I am not here to tear other people down um you know in a weird way like I'm not trying to be negative (laughs) I know this is very dark stuff and very negative stuff um but I'm using this as a way to look to the future Mm -hmm. and say 
hey, as a sport, as a society, we have some really dark pasts. Um, and that's not good. And we need to change those. We need to protect the next cadre of kids um, who have big dreams, who have big hopes, and make sure that they're in a supported place. They know what to look out for. They are protected. Um, And so for me, it's like, I'm going to, you know, thank people and highlight people who really help me. But, um, you know, the the negative side, you know, we can, we can fill in the blanks. Well, I think that's so important. And I appreciate you sharing all of that here because I know people will listen to this and it's going to get them to change their thinking. But I mean, you are a a change maker from, you know, what you did athletically in your high school career and, and early years as a professional to speaking out last fall through the New York Times to what you're doing right now in your new role at Tracksmith and sort of shifting the paradigm of what a professional athlete can be. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I, for one, commend you for it. Thank you. I, you know, I, I don't know what that inner spirit is in me, I guess, that um, has always wanted to go a little bit against the status quo. I went pro early, left the best training group in the world, (laughs) said no to a lot of things, um, and and said yes to a lot of great opportunities like uh, Tracksmith. Um, So I I don't know if some of it's just um, a little bit of luck, and I'm sure some of it is the fact that I've had some, you know, through it all, amazing people to lean on even during the hard times, but. Yeah, it's it's sometimes funny to reflect on things and be like, gosh, I just turned 24. Got a lot of life to live still. <laughs> Got a lot of miles to run. Well, I think there's something optimistic about that and exciting about that and hopeful about that. So let's go with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I, you know, I have a lot of goals in running and I have a lot of dreams in running, but I feel like I love to run period end of sentence. And if that at the end of the day is kind of all I'm ever going to be able to say about my running career from here on out, um, I'd maybe be a little bit disappointed, but at the end of the day, like I want to run when I'm 80, I want to run with, my family. I want to run with my friends. I want to run with my dog. Um, and those miles that I can put in going forward, you know, I hope they lead to really cool things on the track, but if they lead to really cool things through Tracksmith, through my NYR position, through, you know, other opportunities that come forward in the future, um, that would be you know, that would be just as cool. And so, you know, maybe looking ahead, I'm, I don't really, I'm not trying to write my future out, maybe like I used to. Um, I'm just trying to go a little bit more with the flow and, and see where the run takes me. Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. 
I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. We've got a few more minutes before we wrap up, so I want to pivot a little bit here and talk about someone that you've mentioned a few times during this conversation, and that's John Henwood. He's your coach now. I know that you have been working with him since all the way back in high school, and that relationship has certainly evolved over the years. When did you guys first come in contact with one another, and what did that look like at the time? Yeah, so... Um, I met John when I was like a June, uh, yeah, around, around the same time that I had actually met Alberto. So I guess my junior fall, um, in that I had been contacted by Alberto. Uh, he wanted to coach me and I wanted him to coach me too, but I didn't want to move out to Portland. Um, I did want to stay in New York and, you know, finish high school there. And so he, actually had kind of reached out to a few different people in the New York area to see if somebody could kind of be like my guy on the ground and, you know, be there for me at the track and oversee workouts in that way. And I remember meeting John at Bank Cortland and I did like, I think it was like 10 by 400 or something. And he watched me run and he was like, yes, please. I would like to work with her. (laughs) And he was, I don't know. I think it was the fact that I like, really tried to keep my jogs in between the 400s honest where he was like this girl like she's crazy I want to work with her (laughs) Um, and yes I've known John now for gosh so long and you know when I was younger I like now kind of look back and realize that he really helped shape me um during those early high school years because you know he was the person who really got to know me and could see during a workout if some you know, if I needed to be pushed or if I needed to be held back and, um, it just was like such a great dynamic. And then, um, when I left for Portland, um, you know, we stayed in touch, but like maybe not quite as much as, you know, in retrospect, I think I should have. Um, and then when I moved back to New York, we fell kind of right back into lockstep. And since then we've been working together and John's somebody who at this point, I 
like I know him as well, um, like personally as I do professionally. And there's just something really special about having somebody in your life who just like knows what you can do probably more than anybody else. Cause he's the guy who's been at workouts in between injuries where I didn't race during that time, but he saw me whip out some really randomly fast thing. and was like, what the heck? Um, but also has kind of seen that dark side and knows that my, you know, priorities are to stay healthy and to be happy as a person as well. And that might sound silly, but I think for some coaches that side can sort of be forgotten. So yeah, John's, John's a great person, a great coach and a great friend. Well, I, I think the last thing that you'd mentioned there, it's one of the most important aspects of coaching. And I want to go back to one thing you said earlier in this conversation. It sounds like at some point, I think when you were in Oregon, didn't you talk to him and he sort of noticed that something wasn't right. He could just tell that things were off. Yeah. In that, like, I know, I know I, whenever I would talk to like him, it was like such a negativity about like weight stuff. Um, and I think for him, he was just like, you know, you're like 18, 19, like this, this just isn't an issue. Like one, it's just literally not an issue, but two, like counting calories and, you know, doing stuff like that at 18, like that's just never going to help you. Right. Yeah. Like that's just not the move. And he was always like a, you know, very like concerned when I would come home for like a winter break, for example, and like we'd meet up for a run or something like that. Um, and then when I did kind of my like awkward gap year in school where I was like living in New York, but still on the team, and hardcore in denial. Um, John was like, um, you know, the person who I would, you know, go to workouts with and he would like oversee some of my runs. And it wasn't as consistent as when I was in high school. Um, because I think in certain ways I was just like sort of trying to like hide from people in a weird way. Um, and he was just really worried about me because I think he saw the training and just how it was beating me up. But, you know, like I was clearly struggling with food stuff and self-confidence and, you know, he became pretty vocal about trying to adjust things. And in 2016, I went out for some race and it just went awful. And, you know, I went back to New York and John was just like, this was before the trials. We maybe had like six weeks and he was like, we're just going to do something different. Like we're not going to do what Alberto's training is right now. Um, and, and like, to be fair, I think Alberto had kind of agreed to that because I think he probably like lost interest in me at this point. Um, and we just kind of like backed off intensity a little bit, tried to work a little bit more on the aerobic side of things, which I had not been doing. Um, and I actually ended up finishing 11th in the trials. And honestly, based on the training that I had been doing before that, even though I would have these like sporadic good workouts, um, I just had no, like I had no energy because I was either like constantly trying to sprint and like trying to cut calories. So it was just this weird, like constantly emptying the tank situation. Um, and then John came out with me 
to the trials because I honestly didn't feel comfortable going alone. Um, and he caught me um, cutting. And after the final, like, you know, I had been alone and he came in and he saw me doing it. Um, and he immediately called my parents. And I had never spoken to them before about it. And I had not shared it with John and I had only shared it um, with the NOP team, um, like coaches. And he like, as soon as he saw it, he was like, stop. He was like, this is not okay. Called my parents. And I remember being so mad at him for calling my parents. And then I had like, this was like, the you know night of the finals I had like the longest call with my mom um and she was like you are not on this team anymore like this is like not okay we have witnessed how you've been treated like this is what it's, it's doing to you this has got to stop um and yeah and it I I, the next day I sent an email and I was off the team <laughs> um and you know, I enrolled in classes in Fordham and I I came home and um, John was like, this, like, this is not, you know, like you, you can't, this is unsustainable. And he's like, I think you can have a really long, really great career, but you can't be doing this. And totally honestly, um, part of my like, you know, definite like mental stuff um, carried on after that it's not like that was like a quick fix situation just like leave the team and you're golden sort of thing um my injury cycle kind of started to perpetuate after that and you know I blame myself for part of that because John wanted to do like a pretty deep overhaul of my training um to make it one in which it was just more like sustainable in terms of like doing aerobic work and maybe increasing mileage but not trying to always do all out 200s you know stuff like that um, and I like, wouldn't always listen to it. Like I would sometimes like try to like sneak in the other work, um, and just the bone density issues that I developed finally just kind of started to give way. Um, and it honestly wasn't until I just finally, like, I remember the day I went to John and I was like, just like, tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. Um, and it's been since that time. And it's like, you know, always still a work in progress and we're always still trying to update things that I've been like really running healthy. And and by that, I mean, there was periods in between injuries where I would like cross train like a mad woman. Um, you know, I'd be doing like two to three hours of cross training work for God knows why, because I probably would read like one article that somebody else did that once and it worked. Um, and John was like, no, no we're going to just take it easy. You're going to actually physically heal. And then we're going to start up again. Um, and that's, that's why I had a healthy indoor. It's amazing to hear you describe that. And just the contrast between actually telling your coaches at NOP what was going on with you and what you were doing. They more or less ignored it. And then having John catch you, in the act and doing something about it immediately, which I'm sure as you described at the time felt really terrible. And, you know, you probably felt 
ashamed. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, but to be able to look back at it now and be like, oh, that's someone who actually has my best interests in mind and is looking out for my overall well-being. Yeah. And I mean, the crazy part about it too is the fact that like, well, I'm going to have to tell John about this because there's a very good chance he's going to listen to this podcast and be like, almost not know that full story. In that to him, he probably was just like, duh, of course you're going to call her parents. Of course you're going to do all these things. But he probably doesn't even realize the like kind of effect that it had on me and like how deep it had been running and how much of a like mm-hmm. like how my parents will forever be grateful for just that one simple like of course you call the parents moment um and like i think in certain ways i've never even like you know just talking it out now like i don't think i thanked him enough for that or really ever thanked him for that because you know the kid in the moment was horrified um and the you know it's kind of 2020 vision where you're able to look back and be like oh that that was such a catalyst for change and it was like it's so weird because it was like the very action of like one group not stepping in was a catalyst for a negative experience and then just one individual doing the absolute opposite thing was what has probably led me down a healthy path totally you mentioned your healthy indoor season earlier this year. I know you raced indoors at the Armory a couple of times. I think you did some road racing in New York. Obviously, right now there's no racing going on. The next few months look pretty uncertain. But what did you guys do from a training standpoint? Let's go all the way back to like last fall leading into this winter that you think contributed to you being able to stay healthy and have a full season. Yeah, so... Um, last, like, I think kind of to really give a good time frame, in 2018, in the beginning of the year, um, I like finally was like healthy from my last, um, and hopefully final bone injury. And the spring of 2018, um, and into like the summer, I was actually training really well. Like we were in a really, really good groove of things. Um, but and I raced once and it was my first race in like two and a half years. But after like a couple weeks after my Achilles flared up and we realized that even though training was actually like perfectly good at the time, I wasn't working with a physical therapist. Um, and I think just some of the biomechanical stuff that had maybe, you know, kind of developed, um, because of all the injuries that I had weren't really being adjusted. So like, you know, one of my hips gets too tight and I probably run a little off and that could lead to problems if I'm not taking care of it. Um, so we rehab the Achilles, um, and just we're like, we're going to focus on just like, you know, like always making sure I'm doing the little things as well as doing the proper training. Um, so come, like September of 2019 or so I was like starting running again. And by like around the time the New York times piece, I probably did my first workout. Um, so that would have been November of 2019 had like a month, like six weeks of healthy running under me. And we sat down in like December and we just were like, you know, 
we are so early into a buildup. You have had so many injuries. But, like, let's just race this indoor. It's probably not going to be that good. (laughs) You're probably not going to break records. But there's a certain point where we just felt if I wanted to have a good summer 2020 or summer 2021 and looking ahead, I just needed to practice racing um, and like hurting and maybe being humbled a little bit and just like relearning how to fight. And so we, um, you know, got into a bunch of races. I did the like um, New York Roadrunners midnight uh, four miler, super fun race, really cool. Um, then we did like a couple of armory races and, and I'll be honest, it was kind of tough, like running a 924 3k, because even though, you know, you're pretty early on into the season, you're really early on to build up. Like this is a long-term process. The competitor in me wanted to be PR. (laughs) Like I, you know, it's tough to get on the line a, a little off, um, but we just stuck with it. We kept putting the workout just every week I was seeing improvements. Um, and they weren't always showing in races, but by the end of the season, um, I ran a nine Oh seven, three K and I was just thrilled because it was the moment where I was finally like, there is so much left mm-hmm. in the tank and things are just starting to click. And that just felt like a really exciting jumping off board for outdoor and of course, you know, outdoor isn't really happening. Maybe we'll have some fall events, um, but I'm not really taking that as a downer. Um, instead, I'm just like, it just gives me more time to run healthy and kind of relearn how to run well and how to run hard and how to run fast. And, you know, maybe give me a even better shot in 2021 to have an even stronger indoor and, you know, rock the outdoor season and, and just see what I can do. How are you thinking about yourself as a runner in the next few years? Do you consider yourself still 1500 meter type specialist? Have you talked to John about possibly moving up? I'd love to understand some of that a little bit more. Yeah. So our attitude um, has always been that it's, it's always a timing thing Mm -hmm. where I have always felt that the hardest event, if you're attacking it from a like distance runner perspective, to be fit for is 800 meters because you just have to be so sharp and it takes longer to be sharp. Um, that's why marathoners can get in shape like in three months, but a, a lot of track racers, it, it's maybe more like you have to do your fall phase and then your indoor season and then your outdoor. Um, And so after the 800, there's the 1500. And so this past indoor, we just realized that, yeah, I broke 30 seconds for the 200 for the first time in a few years, which was very exciting, but I wasn't like speed was kind of the last thing we were going to hit, um, like true sub 65, 400 speeds. Um, because that just takes a little bit more time and is a little bit riskier just as you're like re-entering things. So last indoor, we did more like 3K distance because it felt more within my training wheelhouse at the time. Um, and so going forward, yeah, I want to do the 1500. Heck, like I would love to do a really good 800 again. Um, 
but we're also respecting my body and timing. And, um, you know, if we feel that during a season, the 5k is more within, you know, my training wheelhouse, we'll experiment with that. We feel I'm sharp enough. We'll jump in some 15s. Um, but I think it's going to just be, a evolution and, um, I'm sure this fall, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit more distance based, but then hopefully come next outdoor, it's a mix of a bunch of things. Well, I love that approach. I'm excited to see where it lands you a little over a year from now when the Olympic trials roll around in June of 2021. Last question before we wrap up, if you had to pick one thing that is exciting you in running right now, what would that be? I am excited for when races reopen. Um, not not so much in the professional world, but in the like road racing, um, like local perspective, because I think we are in the midst of a another running boom. Um, and I think it's for unfortunate reasons why we are, but I am really excited for the day that we can all like just welcome all of these new runners into I think what is just the most amazing like adult club that you can be a part of (laughs) where um you know I I just think of I mean to me I just picture like the New York City Marathon hopefully happening and all of us being able to line up on the streets and just like feel this new level of support and encouragement and um, community that, you know, maybe had been feeling a little bit stale um, uh, these last few years, just because I feel like, you know, it was like, you're either a runner or you're not. Um, And now hopefully going forward, there's maybe more of a new appreciation for what it means to be a runner. I love that. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm appreciative of your time and I wish you the best moving forward. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. 
It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rockstar team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 